Colossians chapter 3, so if you've got a Bible and you can turn there, we've been in, if you're new, we've been in a series called Essence um, for a while, about six or seven weeks now, and what we've been doing is looking at the things that the Bible says Christians are by definition, in our essence, in our core, our roots, what are we, what is it to be a Christian or to be a follower of Jesus, and we've looked at a whole load of ways in which the Apostle Paul describes who we are because we're believers, These are things that are true of you if you're a Christian. Whether or not you know that they are, whether or not you feel like they are, they're just true, right? It is the case that a believer in Jesus is holy or as a saint, is rescued, is reconciled, is made alive, is hidden with Christ in God, is new, is forgiven. Those things are true of you if you're a believer in Jesus, even on days when you don't feel like it, even if you've never heard that they are. And that's so far in this series, that's what we've been doing. We've been going through the things that are true of all believers in their essence from the book of, uh, letter to the Colossians. But in the last chapter and a bit of Colossians, Paul changes tack a bit and begins, instead of simply saying these things are true of you, he begins to say, because these things are true of you, you now need to live like this as an outworking of the things that are true. And he does that in a lot of his letters. If you read them, he does it in Romans and Ephesians and here. He, he begins with chapter upon chapter of wonderful statements. These things are true. You are this and this and this because look at what God has done in Christ that means that everyone in Christ is like this. Now, since we're on the subject, as a result, you probably want to live like this. That's how Paul often writes and he does it in this letter as he does elsewhere and is applying that theology of who we are into the everyday life of what we do. That's standard Sounded fair, that's what he does. And as we start looking now in a bit more detail in these last few weeks of the series at these instructions, these therefore you should do these things, it's very important that we don't forget that the first seven weeks of the series were all about who we are. Because otherwise it could seem just like a list of rules that have no bearing really on our status or vice versa. And it's very important because we're so programmed to think this way as human beings. Most religious systems work this way. You do certain things and therefore you become something. That's how secularism works. That's how Islam works. Many religious groups do. Christianity says you become something and as a result you start doing different things. That is so important that we maintain that emphasis and we understand that even when Paul says now do this and this and this as an outworking of who you are, that we don't start flipping it around and saying, ah, if I do these things, I'll become something else. No, no, no. You've become something else. As a result, we're going to live different kind of lives. I was reading Martin Luther this week, and Martin Luther, 500 years ago, German reformer and preacher, he said this is a good analogy, I thought. He said this about, imagine a bishop. He said, a bishop, when he consecrates a church, confirms children, or performs any official duty, is not made a bishop by doing those things. Unless he'd been previously consecrated as a bishop, none of those works would have any validity. They would be foolish, childlike, and ridiculous. Thus, a Christian, made holy by his faith, does good works, but he is not by those works made more holy or more Christian. I was at a dinner the other day with um, the Lord Mayor of London. Not the Mayor of London. My only thing with the Mayor of London is I was once on a bus that he got kicked off um, literally, he was trying to barge onto a bus that was already full and they shoved him off the bus. I, was, I lived in Islington, that's where he lived. and So that was a bit of a moment for me. His hair was going everywhere. Not the Mayor of London, the Lord Mayor of London, who no one knows who they are. And I still, having sat next to his executive assistant for the evening, still don't really know what he does. But he's basically a sort of ceremonial uh, ribbon cutter and speech maker and dinner haver. And he just 
wafts around making speeches. That's what I gather anyway. But he has a ceremonial role. And he, he does all of those works, those ceremonial works, because of who he is. This is what Luther's saying. He, does, he is Lord Mayor, and as a result, he lives a certain kind of life and does certain things to outwork who he is. But if I, seeing him, was to think, hmm, if I now go around having random dinners and cutting ribbons and making speeches, I will become Lord Mayor of London. No, you don't. You don't become Lord Mayor of London. You just become an idiot. You've got to make sure that you re- these works only make sense because of who you already are. And if you're not already that person, the works are worthless. So, and so it is with Christ. So it is with the gospel. We become a new kind of person, and from that, these works follow. But the works don't make you that person. It's very important we keep that in mind as we look at some of these instructions. And Paul's done that several times. You know, essence leads to obedience, not the other way around. Obedience doesn't lead to essence. Essence leads to obedience. You are new, therefore put off the old. You are forgiven, therefore forgive. You have been made at peace with God, therefore live at peace. Do you see how he does it? It's always the indicative produces the imperative if you want to be a nerd about it. You are, therefore you should. Let's read Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord's forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the, just previous slide, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In a world where there's a lot of anxiety and turmoil and stress, conflict and obviously often even war, Christians are to be those whose hearts are at peace with God and ruled over by the peace of Christ. We are to be peace people. We are to be reconciled people, peacemakers. Men and women and children and single and married and young and old to be those who are at peace with God and with peaceful hearts. And it's one of the most striking features of mature Christians. I think of two people, two men as as it happens, both of whom I've seen in the last few weeks and seen on their way into church, both of whom are fighting cancer at the moment. One of them has been for a while. One of them much more recently discovered that they are. And seeing the way that these two men of a similar kind of age are, as mature Christians, are articulating the difficulty of the situation and yet finding a peace that doesn't really make sense in the light of what they're going through but has come from God. Seeing it, it's almost hard to explain if you haven't. You think, I would assume that people either recognize how bad it is and disappear down a hole of despair or live in denial and manage to cope. Whereas what actually happens when mature saints face suffering is they look at the situation and they say, this is hard and it is painful and the diagnosis might be bad and so on and it's difficult. But in it, 
God has protected and preserved me and I feel such peace and awareness of his presence and his love. And if you haven't seen someone do that, it's very hard to explain. But when you do, you think, wow, something about mature Christianity produces peace in the heart that rules over things. The peace of Christ in these men's hearts is ruling. It's sovereign. It's governing other things that could be going on in their world. It's ruling over their emotional life or their confusion or their questions or their fears. The peace of Christ is in charge And it's a beautiful thing to see. Now, if you hear things like that and you read a text like this saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, if you're anything like me, one of the things you may then do is think, well, how? Sounds great. I'd love to be a peaceful person. I'd love to walk through life going, ah, it's all good. I feel at peace. Wonderful. I don't particularly want to be the kind of person who goes, ah, I'm stressed, really angry, terrible. Most people don't, faced with a choice between being a peaceful person and a very stressed, anxious, strife-filled person, most people don't go, hmm, I think I'd actually like to be stressful. Most people want peace, but they just don't know what to do or how to get it, how to cultivate the peace of Christ ruling in their hearts. So when faced with joblessness or sickness or difficult circumstances or relational strife, like many of our brothers and sisters, actually persecution or civil war around the world, that's often true for Christians, how in those situations do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Are there things we can do or are we just told to do it? Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, lump it, right, I'm off. Well, no, he's not. He actually gives us, even in this text, things which will help us develop peace and cultivate it. And he puts, he gives kind of, there's two categories I'm going to look at from him. And then I'm going to throw in a third category of my own, which is not technically allowed in this text, but I think Paul would allow me to do it because I think it's true anyway. And Paul says things about it elsewhere. But those three things that we can do to help allow the peace of Christ to rule in us, we can cultivate Christian character, cultivate Christian thankfulness, and cultivate Christian habits. The habits is the one that I'm throwing in at the end, but I think it's true as well. But we, Paul is particularly putting this comment about peace in between. He's sandwiching it between cultivating Christian character and cultivating Christian thankfulness. Let me show you why I say that's true. Verses 12 to 14, the first one, cultivating Christian character. And this, by the way, is much the hardest one and the longest term one. It's probably the most powerful of the three. You know, you have Christian character, you will find peace reigns, but it takes a lot longer to get it than it does to get the other two. This is a long-term goal, and it'll take 40 or 50 years, and you won't wake up one day and go, there it is, patient person, sorted. Ah, humility, I've just found, I've scaled the mountain of humility and reached the top. I'm the king of the castle. Oh, no, no, no. Now, as soon as I do that, I fall all the way back down to the bottom again. It's not like, yeah, so that's, it's it's not an immediate quick fix thing, but As you look at some of these Christian virtues, you see when you develop these things and as you cultivate them, peace will increase in your life. Put on then, as God's, and then he lists a few things about things that are already true. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those things are true of you already. He's told us that already, right? In previous in the letter. You are, if you're a Christian, feel like it or not, you are chosen. You are holy, you are loved. Lump it. He doesn't say that, but that's the gist. You are those things. Now, Given that you are those things, put on. And these list seven kind of virtues or character attributes. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord's forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love. Those are seven different virtues or character attributes to put on. And Paul knows that a huge amount of our anxiety and peacelessness, 
comes from interpersonal relationships. So if you're experiencing a lack of peace in your life, the chances are that a large amount of it, if not all of it, comes from the fact that you are not at peace with other people in some way. It might be their fault, it might be yours, it's probably both, it usually is. But that will probably be a significant contributor to the fact that you don't feel at peace now, if you, are, if you don't. And Paul knows that. Paul's a human too. He realizes that interpersonal relationships cause a lot of our peacelessness. So what he does is, as he's about to say, and let the peace of Christ rule, he brings in seven character attributes that will really help develop and cultivate peace in your life if you develop them. Right? Now to see why this list is a good list, I think it'd be hard to come up with a better list than this. To see why, I want you to compare each of them with their opposites. I want you to look at this table and consider the way that people characterized by either of those lists would feel. In fact, I want you to do even this. Imagine what kind of noise these people would make characteristically if they lived this way. Right? So on the right, you have the list, a list of the virtues Paul is listing here. Put on then, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love. Now, imagine somebody putting on those virtues. Now, imagine the exact opposite. Somebody putting on indifference, malice, pride, self-importance, impatience, bitterness, and hatred. What kind of noise would characterize that person on the left? You ever do that? I make that noise sometimes. I'm quite theatrical. Maybe you don't make that noise. Maybe you just make the noise. That might be your equivalent. I don't know. But somewhere, there is a noise of angst and grittiness and annoyance and anger and frustration and certainly a lack of peace. Now... Imagine somebody characterized by the virtues on the right and the noise they make, they make is, ah, oh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah, I'm characterized by all of those things. You'd find, actually, if you had developed the virtues on the left or the traits on the left, you would find yourself lacking peace all the time. If you developed the virtues on the right, even if you were not doing them to try and get peace, you would find peace followed. Oh. Yeah, it's good. I mean, humility gives peace. Forgiveness brings peace. Love brings peace. It does. And so in my case, the greatest enemy of peace is probably pride. On my list, I've got pride and then impatience, self-importance. In fact, quite a few of them are in there. But I, mean, I wouldn't say I, str- I struggle that much with hatred or malice or bitterness, really. But I do struggle with pride and self-importance and impatience. And so for me, those are the things usually that are at work if something happens and my peace is gone, I find. You'll, be, you'll have a different set, right? I'm not asking you all to rank them and tell the person next to you, but you, probably if you're sitting next to the person you're married to, you probably already know what theirs are. Um, don't tell them. <laughs> that would produce several of the virtues on the left and would not be edifying. But, but actually, I find that those, are the, those things, pride, when I lose peace, so I'm parenting and I get frustrated with my son, Often, the fact that I do is not simply a function of the fact that he's done something wrong. I'm, I'm, or God tells me as a father, you're going to discipline your children, train them in the ways of God, teach them. That's what I do. That's right that I do. But often, there's a blend of, I am teaching this person to do something, and it's really annoying me that they're doing it. And the difference there, the bit that makes me go, is probably pride in my case. There's a, you need to be taught not to do that and to do this instead. Great. That's fine, I can do that neutrally and calmly. The bit that makes me is because pride in me is going, I can't believe a seven-year-old boy would say that to me or something like that. The same is true in marriage. Conflict in marriage might well come from, often in my case, does come from pride, self-importance. 
In my job, if my job is making me stressed, some of it might be circumstance, but often it's just pride. It's, I want to feel like I can do all of these things and everybody's going to be happy with me all the time and I want to feel great, and that's not always the, the case. So in my case, that would make, so you might find other virtues, if you like. So for me, cultivating humility becomes key to achieving peace. But for others of you, it might be other, in a different order. But actually, Paul's list of seven is incredibly insightful when it comes to the sorts of things that human beings need in order to be at peace and allow the peace of Christ to rule in their lives. If you meet someone who's at peace in the storm, the chances are that their character looks like the list on the right. And sometimes, conversely, you meet people and their situation is not that hard. Objectively speaking, it's not that difficult. And yet they're always in turmoil or chaos. That may reflect the fact that they've got the virtues on the left. My experience as a pastor is that you don't... The people's peace or lack of it is not particularly correlated to the amount of difficulty in their, in their life. It obviously makes it a bit worse, but that's not usually the main issue. The main issue is which of those lists they look more like. You can have very, very peaceful people in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. Paul himself, lest we forget, signs off this letter, remember my chains, grace be with you. Right? He himself is in a situation, and by the way, being in chains in a jail in Turkey in the first century is not a pleasant experience. Let's not romanticize it. That's painful and hard every day. It's difficult for him. But you can be peaceful in that. At the same time, you can actually be very overwhelmed and stressed and anxious in a situation that, relatively speaking, which for most of us it is, is relatively comfortable to most people who've ever lived. The character that comes through in your life will be probably more important in shaping the level of peace or not in your life than the circumstances you're in. Now that, but that is a long-term goal, right? That that's, takes ages. As I said, it takes decades. You don't wake up one day and go, I've just became, I just prayed, it was amazing. This gifted evangelist came, this gifted minister came to the church. They prayed for me, they laid hands on me for me to receive the gift of patience. And I got it, it's wonderful. That has never happened, except by liars. You, it doesn't work that way. You can get spiritual gifts that way, but you can't get character that way. It takes ages. So I thought it might be helpful to offset the, the long-haul pursuit of Christian character, which is in the, in the long run actually the most powerful weapon to pursue peace, but offset it with something that's much quicker and much easier. Okay? Do you want something that's a bit easier to do? You think, I don't want to take decades to find peace. I want something that's immediate. Come on, put it in the slot and it works. That's, come on, stop faffing around. Right? Here it is. Cultivating Christian thankfulness. This is a winner. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Be thankful, but three times in three verses. It's such an important theme, we're going to spend the whole of next week looking at it. So I'm not going to go into it much here. But what I do want to say is, just two things. Firstly, thankfulness is intimately connected to peace. Because if you're giving thanks for something, you, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to be anxious, stressed, or in strife about it. Very, very difficult. I don't just say that because the two are in the same verse, although they are. I say it because thankfulness is incompatible with turmoil and envy, and strife, and anxiety. Even when everything around you is kicking off, gratitude can bring peace to you in the midst of chaos. 
giving thanks to God will, if you like, shortcut you to an experience of peace in the moment, even when the character that we've just been talking about is a lot much slower burn and taking longer. There's a story I, I, heard, I don't know if this is true. It's one of those things I've not found evidence for, but I hope it's true. And don't worry, even, the point stands even if it isn't. But the story goes that in World War II, there was a competition commissioned by Eleanor Roosevelt, wife of the president, said, I want a painting that best depicts peace. She said, so just submit paintings, and people come in and say, this is what I think peace is like. And all the standard images you'd expect came back. Lots of paintings of rolling pastoral landscapes with hills and sheep and babbling brooks. And there was one painting that was completely unlike the others, which was of a raging waterfall. Dark skies, tempestuous, crashing. You could almost hear it coming off the painting. And in the midst of the waterfall was a tree that looked like it was ready to go. And on a branch of the tree, there sat a dove. And the dove was singing in full-throated song. And the painting won first prize. Why? Because peace is the capacity often to thank and celebrate in the midst of extremely trying circumstances. When the storm is raging, peace is the ability to see the good and to celebrate the goodness of God in and around all that's going on. So thankfulness is intimately connected to peace. And also, when I just briefly comment, that thankfulness is in many ways much easier to cultivate than the character traits we looked at. As we've said, humility, patience takes 40 or 50 years, but you can decide to be thankful right now. You can at any time, day or even night, you wake up, you can decide to give thanks. You can just make a decision. I can't really do that with patience. I can't just go, I'm just going to decide to be patient. That takes more effort, more experience and practice. But you can decide to be thankful. You can wake up on any given day, at any time, walking down the street, driving the car. You can say, Lord, thank you, and begin to list the ways in which the gifts of God are blessing you in abundance. You can choose to do it. You don't have to be practiced and discipled into it. You don't have to, we don't run, as you may have noticed, we don't run groups that are simply, I need to, need to train me. How again do I give thanks? You don't need to do it. You don't need to be taught how to do it. You just say, thank you, God, that you have done this. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. You can look at the world around you. You can look into your heart, look into your history, look at your relationships, your money, anything it is, and you can thank God. You can just decide to do it. It's wonderful. It's like the light switch of peace because as soon as you begin to thank it becomes almost impossible for the anxiety and strife and envy to remain there. In my personal walk with God, nothing restores peace to me as quickly as thanking him. It really does. Now that, if I am at, it's just the thing I need to go and do. I need to spend a few minutes on my own and I need to thank God for stuff. And it is incompatible with the frustration and conflict welling up in my soul. It drives it out. It's beautiful. It gives it the boot. And we were just praying before the meeting, um, and my friend Terry, who many of you know, who leads the Inspire Old People's Ministry here, she's, she was just bringing this word about how we're talking about peace, and she was praying out about the peace of God that comes from knowing that Jesus has got you like a shepherd carrying a sheep on his arms, on his back. And she was just using this picture as an example of how we can thank God, saying, God, even in all the conflict and turmoil of my life, you are carrying me. Thank you. It was a wonderful, wonderful word, and it reminded me of something that I've never shared here, and I really wanted to, because it is an inspired coffee mug, which I'm going to put on the screen in just a moment, but you will only get the joke 
if you have come across the Footprints painting or Footprints tea towel or the Footprints poem, right? And most of you have because most of you have been around church. If you haven't, ignore it. It won't make any sense. But you know the one about, I was walking along the beach and there were two sets of footprints in the sand and then it was difficult and I looked and said, why is there only one set of footprints? And the Lord said, because I had you, carried you and so on, right? I'm sure it's been a poem of some encouragement to many of us. I don't mean to make fun of it too much, but... I think this is a more accurate take on it from a coffee mug I recently saw, and I wanted to share it with you because it's both funny and true. And it says, my child, there has only ever been one set of footprints in the sand because your sorry butt has always needed to be carried. (laughs) That's inspired. It's true. It's actually much truer than the footprints poem, which is as if I'm walking along on my own a lot of the time. No, 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 no. You are always being carried. And I just thought it as Terry shared that word, so I asked Linda to stick it in the presentation because I thought that's actually quite a helpful way of thinking when you're in turmoil. I say, I need something to be thankful for. Lord, thank you that you have... There's only ever been one set of footprints here because you are the one who carries me. It's genuinely, amidst the humor, it is a, a good thing to thank God for. And there are many, many more where that came from. So, cultivating Christian character, cultivating Christian thankfulness, and then the last one, which isn't in the text, but I'm going to chuck it in as a Brucey bonus, cultivating Christian habits. Right? Now, I'm calling them Christian habits. You could call them spiritual disciplines or something. A lot of people do. The word discipline to me sometimes sounds a bit sort of strict and austere, so I like habits because it's a bit more neutral as a word. But I'm thinking of things like prayer and meditating on the scriptures and silence and thinking about the gospel and those sorts of just ordinary habits of the Christian life, okay? And for those things, those Christian habits help us find peace in all kinds of ways that we may not even realize they do. But for many people, they seem like they take away peace because they seem like they add more things for you to do on your list, right? So here's how a lot of people think about Christian habits like prayer, Bible reading, meditation, etc., silence, whatever. They think, you have become a Christian, good. Now, because you're a Christian and you want to grow, you need to start putting some Christian habits in your life. So it's like plates to spin. So I'm going to give you a stick and I'll put a plate on the top of the plate of prayer. And you just spin that plate. And as you do that, you'll be, become a better Christian. So you start spinning the plate of prayer. And then somebody else says, and you need to read the Bible as well. If you just pray, it's just you. You need to hear from God as well. So you put another stick over here and you read the Bible. You go here, okay. It's all good. Okay, fine. I can do this. This Christianity thing's going well. And then a third one arrives. You need to share the gospel with somebody. And it's over here. It's a little bit harder to do that as well, but I can still just about do it. And they say, you need to spend some time in silence. And you spend some time meditating on these truths. Don't just read it. Meditate it. Absorb it. Internalize it. Let it become one with you. Learn to sing some songs. Go out for walks and spend time with the Spirit. Learn to develop the gift of healing. And you think, "Ah!" I'm now running around with nine or ten different plates all spinning. And it's adding stress to my life and removing peace from me rather than bringing more of it. I want to suggest that if you think about spiritual disciplines or Christian habits that way, it will rob you of peace. But there's another way of thinking about Christian habits. And that is not as plates to spin, but as springs in the trampoline. Each added one gives you a little bit more bounce in the pursuit of peace in your life. So you go... You go I mean, I'll, I'll tell this. We went trampolining yesterday with the children to a sort of special needs trampoline thing in Seaford. And there are these, when I'm talking about trampolines, I don't mean the ones like you have in your garden. Um, we've got a trampoline in our garden. I misjudged trampolines. I'll just say that uh, there's a little excursus here, okay? I misjudged a trampoline at Drusilla's, famously and very embarrassingly, where I assumed it was about the same level of springiness as the one in my garden. 
So I went to jump on it as if it were. And it's not even a trampoline for grown-ups. It's a trampoline for three, four, five-year-olds. But it's quite inviting. And some of you know the one I'm talking about. It's in Drusilla's, and it's under one of those like Samoan-style thatched roof things. And it's about a ground level, which is lethal because it means that you've got a lot more momentum than you realize you have. And I saw it, and there was no child on it. This was a few years back. And I just went up and thought, and I'd do this anyway. I'm a bit inclined to this kind of whimsy. And just ran up and went, hey! And as I hit the spring, I mean, there was let's say substantially springier than the one that I was used to. And I ended up about seven or eight yards away, kind of where Sarah is sitting over there, feeling a total fool, ah, and a shriek. And of course I do that. And that's the sort of thing that makes people point and stare and laugh. And Rachel, you've ever seen Rachel do an eye roll? It's a sight to see. She was not impressed that I'd done this. Now, all that had happened was I had just misjudged that it's possible to have many more springs in one trampoline than another. And as you put more springs in, you get more bounce. Now, when spiritual disciplines or Christian habits are like adding in more and more springs to the trampoline of peace, if you like. You're trying to find peace, and you think, I don't know how to get this, but I'm going to put some habits in place that just make it easier and more effortless for me to jump and find the bounce in God that I'm looking for, and find the peace of God that passes understanding. So prayer, for instance. Prayer is a wonderful way of pursuing peace It adds a lot of spring to your trampoline of peace, if you like, because as soon as you pray, you offload your cares onto someone who is actually big enough to handle them, which you're not. And the very act of sitting in God's presence and saying the things that you are anxious about makes the problem smaller. And and it reminds you that you're not God and that he is. I was just reading this a couple of days ago in this uh, Tim Keller's superb book on prayer, it says, when your prayer life finally begins to flourish, the effects can be remarkable. You may be filled with self-pity and justifying resentment and anger. Then you sit down to pray, and the reorientation that comes before God's face reveals the pettiness of your feelings in an instant. All your self-justifying excuses fall to the ground in pieces. Or you may be filled with anxiety, and during prayer you come to wonder what you were so worried about. You ever had that? I have. I came into this time of prayer so anxious And by sitting down, I don't even mean spending an hour and calling out to God. I mean, within seconds sometimes of sitting down or standing up and praying, the problem becomes smaller. You laugh at yourself and thank God for who he is and what he's done. It can be that dramatic. It is the bracing clarity of a new perspective. And that's often been my, not always, often been my experience. The prayer is like a spring in the trampoline of bouncing for peace. You think, actually helping, it helps me. It's not, just a, it's not a task for me to do. It's a thing I can do in order to help find peace. Same is true of reading the scriptures. Right? Because on almost every page of the Bible, you will find some variant on God is big. God is good. You are neither. And that's okay. Right? And those truths, when you absorb them into your soul, make peace rise. God is in charge. I'm not. God is good. I'm not. He knows. I don't. That's okay. Reading the Bible helps the pursuit of peace. It brings many things, joy, faith, but it brings peace as you read Scripture. Spending time in silence can do that. It's another good spring in the trampoline. Just spending time alone in silence, even if only for a minute or two. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. That's true. Yes. Okay, I will. Uh, yeah, I'll reflect on, you know, and you do that kind of, you just spend a little bit of time just breathing, reflecting, thinking, quiet, be still and know that I am God. It can bring peace. It's a spiritual discipline. 
or a Christian habit. Meditating on the gospel brings peace. I just, I love, you know, just the truths of the gospel that Christ has done it and you can't do it. Run, John, and work the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, bids me fly, gives me wings. You meditate on the truths of the gospel and you start thinking, this brings peace. It's not down to me running, though I don't have any feet or hands. It's down to me flying on wings that have been given to me by somebody else. And so on. Sometimes just going outside and worshipping God for what he's made brings peace. I find that. I live really near the sea. I love it. In Eastbourne, if you can't do this in Eastbourne, you can't do it in many places. The downs plus the sea. You go and stand and you think, whoa, there is... Look at the character of God revealed in what he's made. I'm in a book group at the moment. We're looking at G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, which is amazing. Or at least half the group think it's amazing. The other half, we're still arguing with them about it. It's brilliant. We're really enjoying it in the group. And this is something that we read this last week from Chesterton about just going outside and seeing what God's done. He said this. He said, because children have abounding vitality, because they're in spirit fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. They're always saying, do it again. And the grown-up does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And then every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately and has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we are. I love that. And sometimes I'm outside just looking at what God's made, thinking God is demonstrating a, there's a peace that comes to me as I see what he's done, and I just reflect, wow, the waves are crashing in again, because God is in charge still. So there are, these are Christian habits, right? Being outside, worship, prayer, solitude, silence, scripture reading, and those things add bounce to the quest for peace in your life. So, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. We're called to be peace people, right? The easiest, most short-term way of getting peace, I think, is thankfulness. The one that's got the most power in the long run, but does take longer, is cultivating Christian character. And then in the middle, there are these kind of Christian habits that putting them in place will help find peace in the ups and downs of normal life. But as we close, I just want to, I want us to, the band are going to come out, and I just want to pray for you using a prayer that's very old. It goes right back to Paul in Philippians, and it's used, a lot of churches finish their meeting every week with this prayer. And I just, I think it's helpful. And then at the end of it, I'd love us just to spend a minute or so in silence, allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work among us off the back of what we've said this morning. Some of us, it'll need to be, uh, there's particular things we need to do or change. Others, we just need to experience again a renewal of knowing the peace that comes from God. But let me pray, and then we'll spend a moment in silence at the end. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.